You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. I'm Rick Kleffel, and today I'm speaking with Kim Stanley Robinson. As a science fiction novel, the two, the two books in this series so far, 40 Signs of Rain and 50 Degrees Below, they don't read really like science fiction. They're more like political histories. Yes, well, I think the science fiction novel is a really capacious form or genre. It, it, uh, it has a lot of different ways of making its effects, and it depends on how far in the future you cast it. If you put it in um, the next few years and you don't put a date on it, it reads like realism because what I've been saying now for many years is that really we're all living in a science fiction novel now. That's what reality has become is a kind of 20th century science fiction novel so that if I were to tell you that they that they cloned a person yesterday in South Korea, you wouldn't know if I was making it up or if I read it in today's newspapers or saw tomorrow's newspapers. It's almost impossible to tell what's really been achieved and what has just been suggested in science fiction because things are changing so fast right now. So actually, science fiction is really the new realism. It's really the literary form that best describes the way reality feels to us all right now. Um, on the other hand, you can then say, well, what about 200 years from now? And 200 years from now, there's going to be human beings, and they'll either be you know, traipsing around the moons of Jupiter, or else they're going to be grubbing for a miserable existence here on Earth, or some state in between. And all of those are scenarios. I mean, every single possible future you can think up makes a good science fiction novel if you want to follow it. Um, it's these close near 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 future science fiction, which has always existed, but now it's that's getting to be um, the new realism. Tell us a little bit about the big part that Buddhism plays in these novels and its relationships to science and to science fiction. Well, uh, Buddhism for me is a very interesting old religion that has a kind of a scientific worldview, and uh, yet it's also very, very focused in on compassion for fellow beings. So I think it's interesting because I think that scientists themselves think of science as being essentially a neutral and value-free method for finding things out and for manipulating nature. And what I'm maintaining is that science is not actually that. I mean, it is that, but it's also a kind of an ethics. It re requests and formulates human interactions that are more straightforward and just than the standard political interactions. So it's already a proto-politics, but it also, I think, is a way to try to reduce suffering. And this has also always been what Buddhism has claimed, is that it is a mental habit that can reduce human suffering. Well, I think science is actually a set of physical and mental habits that are designed to try to reduce suffering through the medical arts and through the increase in our ability to manipulate nature to protect ourselves from the bad parts of it. So I'm always interested, and it's, I find it um, heartening that the Dalai Lama is also very interested in this from the other perspective. I mean, I think I come from a scientific culture and a scientific worldview myself, but he comes from a Buddhist perspective, and for him, science is really the most interesting um, current addition to human knowledge, so that he's constantly trying to put together Buddhism and science conferences and see what uh, con contribution they can make to each other. And so I want to explore this border because I think it's not yet fully comprehended and, and is a kind of an interesting new zone of thought. And it can, what, can, um, what else does science need to become 
more than just instrumentality and, and give us a set of goals or a, how can it be injected with values uh, beyond the, the good values that it already has. And Buddhism is, uh, I think, an interesting place to look for that because they already were saying the physical world is what we see. You need to match your uh, ideology to your uh, sensory observations. The Dalai Lama has said, well, Buddhism is a very old worldview. Uh, science is discovering new things every day. If there's any point at which science and Buddhism disagree, then we have to change Buddhism. And so he's got this uh, sort of scientific viewpoint himself already. And uh, I think that the scientists could benefit from thinking about what he brings to the table or what, in general, uh, Buddhism could bring to the idea of values. You mentioned when you saw the Dalai Lama that the entire convention center was silent. And silences play a part in this book and also in the novels, these three novels, because to a certain extent there's a, some, an absence of things within the action, within within uh, the plot. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you use that as a fiction writer, the silences. I want my novels to have strong plots, uh, but I want them to be the kind of stories that when you read it, you think, yeah, that could really happen. It would happen exactly that way if you were to um, start the events, then this is how it would roll out. So that um, it's not really in my game plan to have a, a car chase and a gunfight in every single chapter because I don't think that's really the way reality is for most of us. And I'm, what I want to write about is, is, is ordinary Americans having interesting times. That Life itself is, is not boring. You don't need to turn to uh, the TV and the computer in order to make life interesting. It's already interesting, but I want to try to tell that story in a, in a realistic way. So as a novelist, I have a kind of a realist... Um, um, uh, mindset that uh, is in contradiction to the futuristic aspects of science fiction. So I have these contradictory goals, and that's what what uh, causes my plots to uh, to come into being. So I think of them as being suspenseful in the way that real life is suspenseful, rather than the way in, in which thrillers are suspenseful. And um, and so the the silences that occur are, are what, what I think you're referring to is an attempt to be faithful to the pace of real life but still tell interesting stories. Tell us a little bit about writing a big story. This is a big story. You've only heard the first two parts. Uh, I'd like to ask how far are you along on the third part because uh, I'm waiting with bated breath to find out what's going to happen here. Yes. Yeah, well, that's good because that's a sign there is some suspense, even at a slow pace. And a, a long novel is a long process. It takes me, it'll take, have taken me about um, four and a half years to write this one. And I put it out in, in volumes because that makes the best sense in terms of physical packaging and just keeping something out there for readers to read. And I'm very appreciative of readers, you know, like you and many others, who will go ahead and read the first two volumes, knowing that it'll be a year or two before the third one appears. It's, it's a nice gesture of faith in the storyteller. Um, I'm about halfway through the third volume, and I, I know the whole story. It's in my head, which is a relief, because it wasn't always. But it came to me, and I'm very pleased. And uh, I plan to turn it in next summer, and then I think Bantam will bring it out in the spring of, of 2007. Tell us a little bit about how management skills, that one of the things that's interesting in this book is that 
a lot of your characters are very competent managers of their personal lives as well as their scientific and bureaucratic lives. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about bureaucracy, management, how these play into the novel and how those skills play out as being important within the worldview that you're talking about. Sure, and um, I appreciate that because that's something I'm really interested in in this series is that National Science Foundation is, in essence, the kind of protagonist of this book. They're the institutional hero of this book, but already that's a weird word. I mean, institutional hero. Um, they, uh, what I'm trying to suggest is that people acting in groups do things, and these groups uh, then take on a sort of character. NSF is like a geeky scientist. They're unaware of public relations. They're focused in on science and on the work of science. They, they have to flog themselves in order to remember to contact and make known their results to the larger world. And so NSF has a certain character as an institution. And so when you want to write a novel about that, you, act, you run into the terrible problem of trying to describe bureaucratic or group action in a novel because novels are really uh, designed to tell the stories of individuals in interaction with the world. And I'm very committed to the novel as a form. So what I come down to is picking individuals in these institutions that basically are uh, stand for uh, whole crowds of people that are very much like themselves in their work so that they do their work, and it's not extraordinary. They don't have to uh, go make a speech on the floor of the UN. They don't have to dive, you know, freestyle to the bottom of the ocean. They don't end up doing individual heroics. They end up doing what people in that job do and with the implication that everybody else with jobs like it are also doing their jobs. And as a result of that, humanity moves forward and, and makes progress in interesting ways. So this is another one of the aesthetic problems of science fiction. Can you describe historical change in the form of a novel? It's a, it's a nasty aesthetic problem, but it's also an opportunity because the novel really is supposed to tell us what history means uh, on the individual but also the group level. So you do, as a novelist, if you're concerned with the big picture, you do have to try to engage the, the larger historical forces while still keeping your individuals at the forefront of the picture. And I mean, novels, in the end, always have to be about characters. Even the wildest science fiction novel is, in essence, a kind of dry intellectual exercise if the characters in it haven't been uh, brought alive somehow so that readers are uh, intensely engaged in the fates of individual characters. So I uh, keeping all these things balanced at once is, uh, you know, it causes me sleepless nights and it, and it causes me lots of uh, revisions <laughs> and thrown aside pages. But I, I maintain that it's interesting and it, and it is essentially a kind of an empty ecological niche in the in the world of books, so that if people want to read that kind of thing, they're going to be a little bit hard-pressed to find it, but um, I know I'm trying, and there's other novelists who are trying the same kind of thing, and so we, we exist and, and are there to be discovered. Tell us uh, some of the other authors you think who are doing the same kind of exercise. I'm a little hampered here because I'm so busy writing my books that I haven't read as much as I ought to have. Um, but I keep up with some of my uh, cohort, uh, the science fiction writers of my generation, without knowing a whole lot about the, the younger writers that are coming up. But I can say for sure that um, the British writers Gwyneth Jones and uh, Canadian writer Jeff Ryman are doing the same kind of thing brilliantly. 
Uh, Ryman's last book called Air is about what happens in a Central Asian town when the internet arrives to the old style of life. And it's really about China's relationship to, to the modern world. And it is a wonderful novel. Uh, Gwyneth Jones wrote a book recently called Life, which is about a woman scientist, a biologist who comes across some interesting and troubling uh, discoveries about the Y chromosome and its tendency to kind of disappear from human DNA. And so, but it's also about how science works in the modern world and how a woman uh, scientist uh, uh, works within the still somewhat patriarchal structure of science. So this is, these are good writers. And here in the States, um, the short stories of Terry Bisson I've just been reading recently, tremendous uh, illuminations of our current moment by way of science fiction. So uh, good work is being done, and I, I'd lo- I like to be um, thought of as part of that crowd. It would be a, an honor because they are a, a talented group. One of the things you write about in this book are partisan politics. Yeah. Scary. Uh, it, it is scary. Tell me a little bit about it, how it feels. Is it something that scares you as a writer to approach? Well, yes. Uh, um, I, as a novelist, I would like anybody uh, 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 who can read English to sit down and enjoy my book. Um, as a political person, I've been watching what Chris Mooney, I think his name is, in his book, The Republican War on Science, I've been watching a partisan attack on science per se as an activity to politicize it and alter its results when its results are not convenient to a certain portion of society. And I really disapprove of that. And I think it might cause a backlash that these people are underestimating the social power that science has to resist anybody messing with their methods. So that um, in the long haul, uh, this, this network, and this is what I think people don't understand about science, is that it's not an isolated fact or theory, you know, evolution or global warming that can be attacked because they exist in a network that is comprehensive, that includes why your airplane will go into the air when you get on it as a passenger and fly. You cannot fly to a conference on the other side of the, of the country and then claim that evolution is wrong because the, f- the airplane flying and the theory of evolution are part of the same network of established theories that we all believe in. So um, I had to write about this uh, as a kind of um, defender of science as the method that, that gives us the best chance of getting through the next couple centuries. Um, I had to just take a stand and say, in this case, the radical conservative or fundamentalist wing of the Republican Party has, has captured their party and taken it down a wrong path. And, I, and novels have to talk about the real world, that, that 2,000 novels can be published a year in America and none of them discuss this culture war that we're in. It's a ridiculous kind of fear response on the part of novelists and publishers. It has to be written about because it's the story of our time. We're in the midst of a little culture war and sometimes people talk about it being between religion and science. I tend to think about it as, conceptualize it as being between capitalism and science. The true battle is between capitalism and science because capitalism is an unrealistic economic system that would like to grow perpetually within a finite system, and it's wrecking that finite system. And so we either have to change it or else live in a wrecked biosphere. And so at that point, it's time to say that even art is always in some sense political, and novels especially. So it's time to just be explicit, at least in one project. I mean, if every one of my novels were exactly like this, then I would be known as... um, I don't know, some kind of American leftist novelist, which I guess I am already. 
but um, uh, they can either be more or less explicit. Let's put it that way. One of the things you have happen in this novel is this: that the NSF creates a virtual scientific presidential candidate. Tell us a little bit about that experiment. Well, I wondered if you took scientific understanding of the world and scientific principles, and to a certain extent the bureaucracy of government has been somewhat scientized, if you, if you were to try to design a scientific candidate uh, so that this candidate was just expressing like, say, um, I don't know, uh, Stephen Hawking or E.O. Wilson or some super famous scientist was saying, well, according to scientific principles, the, the policies we ought to pursue to maximize the health of the planet and uh, the reproductive success of individual primates, which are us, would be to do thus and such. And, and I started to think, well, what would that be? What would be the political program of, of not, not an individual, but science as an institution? And it was kind of an, an exercise in comic uh, incongruity. But on the other hand, it was also an exercise in trying to figure out, well, what, what theories ought we to pursue and, and which ones ought we not? For instance, I, and just as a kind of counterexample to indicate that things do need to be rethought, uh, nuclear power would be a, a question that a scientist would look at and say, well, it doesn't put any much uh, CO2 into the atmosphere. It's naturally, it has waste products that are incredibly dangerous and toxic for um, and, uh, too long, thousands of years. So it has pluses and it has minuses, but the current situation that we're in uh, with the, the problem with carbon dioxide is such that maybe we ought to make sure that there's a federally mandated um, uh, plan that design that is fail-safe as we can make it, like a Navy submarine nuclear plant that is reproduced around the country. So we have one more generation of nuclear to kind of transition us to a much cleaner energy later on. Um, maybe a scientist would say that, maybe not, but um, it takes it I wanted to think about these things in um, more scientific terms rather than the political terms that they've existed in before. So this virtual candidate goes out there and is kind of a um, uh, a straw man, in in fact. Uh, so his arguments, its arguments, could be added or, or or subtracted from anyone else's platform as a series of platforms that that make sense to the electorate or not. And you come up with a a lovely verb there that your Democratic candidate is being nadered. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, this is the problem with our system. Third parties only wreck the party's chances that they are closest to in point of view. So this is an unfortunate thing. You can't really start a third party. I'm, 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 for instance, I'm very interested in the Green Party. But to the extent that the Green Party succeeds, the Democratic Party fails, and the Republican Party wins. So uh, to the extent that the Green Party succeeds, the Republican Party succeeds. And this is the problem with two-party winner-take-all politics that we are trapped in. If we had a um, preferential voting system like the Australian ballot in which you got to rank your uh, preferences and if your number one candidate has clearly lost, then your number two vote gets to be thrown into the mix. This is a system already in use in Australia and in various places in Europe. And, um, then you have don't have winner-take-all. You have a proportional voting that, as many people represent, um, um, the public according to the percentages in which they voted so that then you could vote for the Green Party and say okay well they are not going to be a majority anytime soon but they'll be 10 percent of the of the representatives in Congress and that that could be a crucial thing and you begin to start making um, alliances so that it becomes more like the European system of alliances of groups 
that are stable or not, depending on what they truly believe in. And then people are more interested in politics because then they can vote their true beliefs rather than always uh, attempting to figure out the lesser of two evils. So I believe in preferential voting, and I wish that system were immediately instituted and it would revive American politics, make it more accurate, make it more democratic. And uh, we need it because right now it's not very accurate or democratic. It's, it's pretty much been bought, and it, and, it, and it doesn't have as much to do with democracy as we would hope or like. And speaking of voting, one of the things that comes up in your novel is vote fraud. And in fact, even as we speak this afternoon, this morning, the paper talked about that a hacker who's going to try to get into the California vote databases, I think as a demonstration of their vulnerability. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that and the McClelland, uh, the Max Cleland well, yes, um, I'm glad you brought this up because it is an aspect of the novel. Part of its thriller plot um, is that uh, one of the scientists at NSF uh, runs into um, people who are aware of a uh, plot to hijack the election by way of computer voting fraud, um, a, f a fixed uh, computer program that is slipped in and uh, just makes a small percentage change in the votes so that the election comes out different than what people really voted. Now that's completely possible and it may or may not have happened already in the past, but I don't want to focus on that because I don't know the story, but the congressional report on the Ohio uh, part of the last presidential election is very scary and why people have not immediately jumped on this and said we have to fix this system is is a symptom i think of how uh, removed we are from our belief in our political system it's as if we don't even care anymore that the vote is accurate or not and how how cynical and dis disappointed and essentially defeated is a populace that says it, well, i don't even care if the voting system is accurate or not what does it matter what does it matter who wins? This is what they're saying in the end. But these computer voting systems that Diebold and other companies have put out there are not solid. They don't have a good paper trail, so to speak. They need a good paper trail. Uh, right now, if someone were to claim to me, well, uh, you know, the election was clean in Ohio and, and Bush clearly won in Ohio, the problem is they couldn't prove it just like I couldn't prove that they were wrong because there is no paper trail and the computers can be messed with in ways that are not determinable afterwards what has happened. This is a, this is a disaster for a democracy, and um, Congress really is the, the group that needs to stand up and say, we can't have it this way. We need to maybe take a step back in technology, and, and, but in any case have a absolutely um, solid and de way to determine who voted for whom. And part of the thriller plot as well is our new surveillance state. There's bugs, but then you come up with something called ticks. Tell us a little bit about ticks. Are, are, have you, do you know, do these exist? Well, yes, they do. Uh, and they are manifestations of um, the new technology that can miniaturize uh, radio receivers, uh, transponders that will bounce when a radio signal hits them. They'll bounce back with a barcode. Uh, Walmart wants to have every single item that they sell with one of these little things, just a few millimeters long. It's like early nanotechnology, except it's milli technology. And um, they, they want to keep track of their stock. It's a relatively benign um, use that Walmart is interested in and is widespread in that regard. As it, but the thing is that you can put one of those little things under the skin of a human being without irritating the skin whatsoever. So that one of the immediate purposes that it may already been put to use is the, the children of rich 
Latin American uh, millionaires are being uh, stuck with these things so that if they're ever kidnapped and uh, taken hostage for ransom, then they'll have some GPS uh, system within them or at least a radio transponder so that if you get them within range of a radio transmitter, they will bounce back a signal saying, here we are and it's me. So this is clearly a surveillance tool. And, you know, there's GPS devices now in our cars and in various kinds of large machinery. Very easy to miniaturize some of this stuff. So I have extrapolated only a little bit thinking that the spy story, the espionage story, is a, is a tremendous form. I love uh, espionage stories because they are thrillers where things are kind of slowed down to my pace of realism. Many spy novelists are intense realists who are trying to explore the possibilities of the current moment in the way that a science fiction writer would. And I, so I just pushed it a little bit further. And I, I, to t this is one of those things that I talked about before. I'm not sure whether it's real or not. It might be real already, but certainly we're right on the edge of somebody being able to walk by you and, and uh, kind of brush your arm. And then suddenly on your clothing is a device that is beaming your location to anybody following you. It actually creates complications for the spy novel that are quite nasty when you try to work out a plot. But they're interesting because they're new. And this is, of course, bad news for happy guys, which is a, a phrase you talk about. People who are, there's a, a lot of people who find all this bad news that we're experiencing quite enjoyable. Well, um, in, but in what sense? Uh, I mean, uh, the. Well, it offers them a problem to solve and something to focus on, but. It gives you something to grab because we, I guess, because we seem to all know that something scary is wrong, and when there's, when it's amorphous, there's not much we can do about it. Yeah, well, that's that's true, um, but in, I don't know. In my novel, the the problems confronted by my characters are quite specific, and they may be difficult to deal with. But uh, it's gone from uh, this amorphous sense of social dread, you know, that people answer in polls. Do you think going, things are going well or going badly? And so many people say they think they're going badly without being able to really specify. Well, that's not my problem. Uh, the, my characters have more specific problems than this point. Uh, yeah, they're they're variously under surveillance or, um, you know, trying to figure out how to live or just getting the, through the day with all of the requirements of a bureaucratic job and a couple of children at home. This is one of the things that I wanted to d try to describe in this novel, that ordinary American suburban life, middle class, um, a couple parents, couple kids, kind of the standard 50s model that a lot of us are still living, in the at least in the baby boomer generation, that this itself can be an exercise in kind of hilarious, heroic um, juggling of various elements that crea can create a kind of a, a thriller novel. Can I get through today as the subject of a thriller? And I wanted to do that too. Tell us a little bit about the comedy in this novel. There's quite a bit of it. And as you say, it really helps uh, create a sense of suspense and tension. And also, it, it seems so realistic. Well, uh, a lot of it I'm living myself, and I can write out of my own experiences. But And, and daily life has a lot of comedy For if you pay attention to that aspects of things. I think family life, kids. It's a, it's a funny, um, in a 
funny life that we've set up for ourselves in America right now, kind of crazy and, and in some senses even stupid, but we're, we're caught in it, we're living it, and so it's best to see the, the funny side of things. I think that anytime, if on the larger scale in these books, I describe them as utopian black comedies, which of course is a form that never existed before my books came along, but anytime you try to do something good as human beings, you're going to mess up at least to a certain extent. And I'm not saying that you're going to fail, because I don't think we do fail. But we do have our weaknesses. We do have, it becomes pretentious to say, oh, I'm saving the world when you also really want to get laid, for instance. And so uh, there's a comedy in the discrepancy between what we say we want to do and our, our noble goals and the realities of what we have to do kind of grubbily to get through even one day. And, and I thought if you don't treat current American reality as a comedy, as a kind of a farce in a way, then it becomes just a, a tale of stupidity. And, 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 and so you have to focus in on the funny aspects of things because otherwise it would be a little bit too horrible to contemplate. And I'm not, that doesn't strike my nature. As a writer, I'm not into uh, portraying us as doomed or as, as, as horrible. I don't believe in original sin. I don't believe that, uh, that we are red in tooth and claw. I think that we're generally a kind of cooperative group of primates with a lot of disagreements, but that it's it's um, more realistic to take the comic aspect to humanity than it is to take the tragic. At least when you're concentrating on living as opposed to as opposed to dying. One of the things you do very well fictionally is to talk is to talk about Frank's point of view of us as primates, and it's it's quite entertaining. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I myself am interested in what sociobiology tells us, that we are primates, that we t evolved over the, about the last um, million years from a different kind of species that wasn't quite human, and that, that by the repetition of certain behaviors, we became human. Well, what were those behaviors? And then you look at the Paleolithic, and you begin to study what uh, proto-humans and early humans did, and during that period of relatively stable behaviors, they just kept doing the same things over and over again. The brain grew by a factor of three. So I'm fascinated by that. Uh, my theory, and a, it's a working theory for how I live, is that all you have to do is do those Paleolithic behaviors and you will be healthy and happy. Healthier and happier than the American uh, consumerist, um, conspicuous consumption lifestyle that so many people are caught in. All you really need to do is spend a lot of every day outdoors. You have to walk a lot, sometimes run. It's fun to throw things at things to try to hit them. It's important to look at fire. Um, it, everybody likes to cook, dance, eat, and talking is, of course, really important. Talking, listening, um, and everybody does a lot of these activities. And when, it, when you survey the list of your activities and uh, contemplate the ones that give you the most pleasures, they tend to be things that you did for free with other people that you care for, like having sex or talking or cooking a meal and eating together. And the stuff that you actually have to pay for that's been commodified and is a kind of technological sublime version of the original activity has never been quite as satisfying. So um, I'm, I'm convinced this is a good working theory for actually downsizing America's uh, energy needs and, and making um, our, our life a little bit saner and healthier for the long haul. Now, my character Frank is, is like me to that extent. He believes all this stuff, but he also is a little bit more of an extremist and one of these 
hardcore scientist who is ready to run an experiment right then. And he also is a kind of divorced person without kids. So he's free to go ahead and try this as a, as a living experiment in daily life. And that's why he ends up in a treehouse in Rock Creek Park and why he ends up uh, trying to um, you know, mitigate the climate during his day job while in his night job he's hanging out with homeless people and chasing white-tailed deer in the park. Uh, it creates part of the comedy of my story, the discrepancy between the two halves of his life or the parts of his life, but it also is a, allows me to explore these issues in a way that's more than just a, my, my quick description of them or more than just my theory. It's a, it's a scenario. It's a way of telling a story based on this theory that exposes maybe the strengths of it and maybe also some of the weaknesses of it. One thing you mentioned that's pretty interesting is the uh, policy analysis market in the futures market. Yes. Uh, well, this ha I saw this in the news, uh, like I bet a lot of people did, that uh, John Poindexter had gotten uh, fired for suggesting a, as part of his total awareness information system, which was a proposal that you collate all of the data that's on the Internet and in our lives into one stupendously big data bank that would essentially make every citizen already surveilled uh, even if they don't have a little chip in their skin that would respond to a radio receiver. Nevertheless, the rest of their life is so known that if you tried to disappear, you could be tracked just from your record. Now, part of that was um, a, a, a futures market, and this was um, the notion that if you get together enough experts and they are free to bet their own money on their opinions, that when you collate all of their opinions in this futures market, like a futures market in any other commodity, you get the best possible prediction. I'm not sure whether that's true or not. I tend to think this is part of the kind of capitalist um, uh, mumbo-jumbo, the, the astrology of capitalism that, that says that they can rule the stars and that they know the future. And that n and you can get together 10 experts and you can make them bet their own money on it and you're still going to get as crummy a prediction as any science fiction writer writing in his study or any other citizen predicting the future. In other words, I don't think futures markets really work, but that doesn't matter what I think. They're being intensively studied and it was at DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Development Agency, that the Pentagon runs, and then it disappeared into a thing called ARDA, Advanced Research and Development Agency, which was associated with and given to an unidentified U.S. security agency, one of the 16, now 17, I guess, because of this National Security Council. In any case, it disappeared down a rabbit hole into our black security system. So there are probably people still studying intensively futures markets to try to predict what might happen next in, this, in the hope that they can predict an emergency and prevent it from happening. Uh, more power to them. If they can make it work, maybe that's good. But in any case, it's, it may be out there in a way that citizens doing uh, cutting-edge work in computers, in information technology, in various kinds of engineering, certainly in aerospace, certainly in weapons technology, they may uh, not know that they themselves are subjects of a futures market that is trying to predict their work in advance and see who needs support, who needs supervision, who needs to be arrested immediately. I mean, the security system, as everyone knows, in the country right now is messed up. It's vague. It's not at all transparent. It it's consists of many competing agencies that actually consider their competitor agencies to be almost more the enemy than whoever the ostensible enemy is. So it's a, it's a mess, and it has not been solved by uh, the recommendations of the 9-11 Commission, which were not fully taken into account in any case. 
So uh, this is the world that we live in right now. It is a kind of a bad science fiction scenario that we live in right now. So uh, it, in some senses, it becomes easy for a science fiction writer. You just write what you see in the newspapers, and it already is science fiction. And that's, to a certain extent, that's what I've done. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Kim Stanley Robinson. His new novel is 50 Degrees Below. Thanks, Kim. Pleasure. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.